And so uh, then I then I start the recording, and then I play the intro music, and the intro music is great. It has this little, you know, you hear the door creaking, at which point I tell you, this is Surreal Politique, Stage 1, Episode 22, Country versus Country. And I can sort of talk over it a little bit, you know, and it allows me to do that. It's a courtesy provided to me by the uh, professional artist who made the music. He's a great guy. Scotty Jam Jam. Great fellow. Thank you, sir. on this august 14 2023 is the current year this is stage one episode 22 country versus country i'm the host of this uh, production as you might have gathered and uh you know when one country rises up against another that's usually what they call war and uh, i'm not so sure that uh, what i'm about to describe to you is a categorically different phenomenon <clears throat> You know, uh, it's only in the last few years that I have developed an appreciation for what is known as country music. I used to hate it. I really did. My, my father, he listens to country music. And with some notable exceptions, I found it intolerable as a child. You know what I liked? I liked the Oak Ridge Boys. I, not, and not all of their stuff. Um, me and my brother used to love the song, Ain't No Cure for the Rock and Roll. But most of the stuff my dad listened to, I couldn't stand. It was, uh, the genre in my mind was called dad's music, of course. And it also might go without saying that my father considered my music, uh, the genre of my music in my father's book, it was called noise. That's what he called my music, of course. And as I understand it, you know, these generational gaps in taste are not terribly unusual. It might also be a familiar phenomenon that as I grew older, my tastes changed. In particular, as I became disgusted with all that is pop culture, I looked for entertainment options, which did not glorify drugs and promiscuity and crime and generally aimed to participate in the destruction of my civilization. With, again, some notable exceptions, country music served me well here. And country music, as the name might seem to imply, is near-universally patriotic, of course. Among the most popular songs ever produced in the genre is Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American. The country music, uh, the country music is packed with cultural references that appeal to conservatives, like guns, work, family, self-reliance, community, honoring military service, even in what has been dubbed outlaw country, there's a respect for America and its institutions. Take, for example, Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues, in which, though he has shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, and is consequently stuck in Folsom Prison, where time keeps dragging on, he recognizes that, quote, I know I had it coming, I know I can't be free, and because of this, when he hears that whistle blowing, he hangs his head and cries. In Merle Haggard's song, Fight Inside of Me, he laments, quote, I hear people talking bad about the way we have to live in, here in this country, harping on the wars we fight and griping about the things ought to be, the way things ought to be. Sorry. <clears throat> and I don't mind them switching sides and standing up for the things they believe in, 
when they're running down my country, man, they're walking on the fighting side of me. Yeah, walking on the fighting side of me, running down the way of life. Our fighting men have fought and died to keep. If you don't love it, leave it. Let this song I'm singing be a warning. If you're running down my country, man, you're walking on the fighting side of me. And country music is in no way short on sadness. You know, there's that old joke you probably heard it. What happens when you play a country song backwards? The guy stops drinking, he gets his wife back, gets out of jail, that sort of thing. But they don't blame their country for their sadness, contrary to some of the other genres. They are, on the contrary, very grateful to live in America and are quite certain that whatever their woes today, they would be far worse had it not been for their good fortune to have been born in America and for the service of military personnel who protect the freedoms they curse themselves for not taking advantage of. Lee Greenwood's famous track provides a prominent example wherein he says, If tomorrow all the things are gone, I'd work for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. So it was an interesting phenomenon to me as a casual observer of the genre to see back-to-back releases of two songs, which indicated that people have just about had it with the state of affairs in American modernity. First, there was the much-talked-about Try That in a Small Town, which was dubbed as racist violence by left-wing fanatics because Jason Aldean had the nerve to question the virtue of robbing liquor stores and carjacking old ladies. But even here, Mr. Aldean grouped Stomp on a Flag and Light It Up in with these violent criminal acts, indicating that his patriotic streak had not been diminished by the ubiquitousness of the scenarios he laments in the song. Then came Oliver Anthony's Rich Men North of Richmond. This song, by a man described as an off-grid farmer, was recorded and promoted by Radio West Virginia and quickly shot to number one on iTunes and has been trending on Twitter for days. I myself has listened to it maybe a hundred times already. I mean, I think something's wrong here. That doesn't sound right, does it? Let me turn that down a little bit. Maybe, does that improve things a little bit? I'm going to turn this down. Maybe, maybe that. Okay, so anyway, as I was saying, I think I was clipping a little. Sorry about that. <clears throat> One rendition I listened to came as he played for a live audience in North Carolina, his first live show since becoming famous. One line stands out in the context of our theme today. Young men are putting themselves six feet underground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. And in the, <clears throat> excuse me, One second. Ah, there we go. Much better. In a live performance, I'm going to show you this. He takes his hand off the guitar, points to the audience. They sing the line enthusiastically, and he allows it to hang in the air for what seems like an eternity before he finishes his song. Let me play that for you. We got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat. Just wake up and not be 
But it is. Indeed it is, ladies and gentlemen. You saw that. Not a boo, not a hiss, not a moan, not a single hint of disapproval from an audience near universally accustomed to their favorite artists praising America, no matter how much they themselves are suffering. On the contrary, the cheers of the audience show that they were positively charged by the recognition that their government had turned against them. They shouted that line as if they had been waiting their whole lives to say it. And one imagines that no shortage of them, in fact, have been waiting their whole lives to say it. And now they are hyper aware that they are not alone in this. Rich men north of Richmond likely marks one of the more important moments in our country's history. What it signifies will, of course, depend in large part on who writes that history. And this will be determined by the victors of a war that rages quite independently of foreign actors, though they certainly play a role. The most patriotic people in the country have just about had it, and there is no certainty about what that portends for the future. This is not a cost-free, unalloyed good. It may be described as necessary in the, in the vein of uh, Howard Beale's line from Network, wherein he says, I, have this, uh, I had this all queued up for you, and then I moved something. Give me a second. Come on, come on. Oh, you stupid thing. I'll find it. In which he says, All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. It may be described as necessary in the vein of Howard Beale's famous line from Network. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. In that, you know, whatever. If people do decide, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Then they are likely to change the current state of affairs. But what comes after that? Well, you know, there is no certainty about that by any stretch of the imagination. It's not obviously good that the people who pay the taxes and fight the wars come to hold their government in contempt. There's nothing obviously good about that. It's not something that just gets fixed after the next election. It's not even something that gets fixed with revolution and far from it. Most revolutions turn out very, very badly. Elections, of course, they have what could charitably be described as mixed results in the United States. Charles Murray, in his 2012 book, Coming Apart, warned of a cognitive elite becoming so disconnected from the rest of society that their culture had become foreign to the general public. He warned that this could have quite dire consequences for the future of the country. And while one might question the cognitive status of the rich men north of Richmond, they certainly think themselves smarter than the rest of us. And this idea that they are fit to impose upon us all that they deem wise and just is born of that arrogance. And some of the reaction to the Oliver Anthony phenomenon has only served to prove this point. A notable example comes as a theme very familiar to conservatives, that the rich pay most of the taxes, right? Anthony's claim that the rich men north of Richmond are responsible for the dollar being, quote, taxed to no end, was met with mockery by these folks who state, in essence, that poor people should stop whining and shut up about taxes since it is those rich men north of Richmond paying the bulk of them. And this has all the glibness of the sheriff of Nottingham in the story of Robin Hood. Telling poor people to stop whining about taxes is no way to get them on board with your project, and it might also be said that what these rich men are paying for has not been working out so well for these poor folks or even for people substantially better off than them. 
They don't want it at any price. You could pay for all of their meals and housing and transportation, and they would still reject it. This Klaus Schwab idea that you will own nothing and be happy is not going to fly with these people. They're not going to accept the program. Mr. Anthony lives as an off-grid farmer. He is so disgusted with the way things are going that he doesn't want to share an electrical outlet with the modern world. And he is only unique in his managing to pull this off. Many, many people are feeling exactly like that. But most people cannot function this way, and a society all the less so. Not indefinitely, anyway. This is completely unsustainable. And just as telling has been what some would describe as a far-right response, but I would describe it as a subversive effort within the far-right. That response should give you sympathy for conservatives who call you a fed when they think you're a racist. And when I see these types, I know that I am on the right track. When I was posting about this on Telegram, out of the woodwork come a bunch of people who I've never seen before, who have never commented on an episode of my show, who are saying things that no listener of my show would say. And they're saying that this guy should be naming racial minorities or standing up for convicted murderers and that until he does that, he does not deserve our support. Of course, a song about James Fields or the McMichaels family is terribly unlikely to be number one on iTunes anytime soon. And one doubts that this is lost on the people who insist that everybody who tries to do something good must first doom himself to failure. And I think that that is conspicuous in the extreme. Like on what planet do you think that this happens, right? A guy who comes out and makes what becomes like a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's a, it's a working man hero song, right? I mean, it's like, he's like, hey, I understand what you're, what you feel like. And that's not because he's up in the upper echelons of society reaching down and being like, hey, little guy, I know what it's like for you. He's like, I'm, I, I'm sick of, I'm so sick of this that I've unplugged from the grid, <laughs> I live on a farm, and I don't want anything to do with this nonsense, okay? That's what, that's what this guy is talking about. And so, you know, they are celebrating his success in that he understands what they're going through and that he's not up there. He's with them. He's one of them. And then he's catapulted to the top by the love of the people who hear his song. And there's nothing bad about that at all. Like, there's nothing bad about that. <laughs> like... The people who are upset about this are malcontents, right? You know, whether it's because they're, you know, whether it's because they're right wingers who who can't stand anything that's not screaming about Jews, or whether it's their, whether it's because they're rich men north of Richmond <laughs> who who want to see this phenomenon stopped. You know, it's categorically the same phenomenon. They just can't they can't tolerate the idea of something like this succeeding. And so I think it's conspicuous in the extreme when you see it happen. And I'll tell you something else. You know what I else I found kind of interesting about that? You know, um, somebody had brought to my attention on, again on Telegram, which you should be following me on Telegram, t.me slash follow Chris. Uh, that'd be a great idea. Telegram's great. I posted years and years and years ago that Telegram is the new gab. And uh, boy, has that, you know, has that really turned out to be the case? All in, you know, except that, you know, gab is not nearly so successful as Telegram, as a matter of fact. But Telegram's so great, and I'm sorry if I, like, neglect other social media platforms, but I just find Telegram to be so useful that I end up on there most of the time. And it's not where my biggest audience is by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, 
217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. I would love to hear from you about this or anything else. And uh, why don't I do this? Give me just a second here. Maybe I'll play. uh, I'm going to play a quick clip from Jordan Peterson. This is something that you might find familiar if you listen to my uncensored production, where he he talks. uh, This is a very quick clip. I'm just literally going to do something to give myself 30 seconds here. All right. So this is Jordan Peterson uh, talking about basically society falling apart. You know what you call people you can't talk to? Enemies. And if we want to divide our society into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing. And I would recommend that we don't do this. I've studied authoritarianism for a very long time. I know what happens when things get out of control, and it can happen extraordinarily rapidly. And I would say we're on the cusp of that. Indeed we are. And so, like, what he's warning about here is actually pretty sound, okay? And, you know, maybe you're somebody who thinks that what we need is authoritarianism, and I could certainly certainly understand why you would come to that conclusion, frankly. That's what I needed to do. I think that that button I just hit probably improved my microphone a little bit. You know, uh, pardon me for talking shop with you, but... I just installed something what's known as a gate slash expander slash compressor, and uh, I'm still getting used to the to the tool. And so I think I was clipping a little bit in the introductory audio, and I'm very sorry about that, but I think I just fixed it. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And so w- what he's identifying is that, like, okay, you know, when a society starts spiraling rapidly out of control, you know, something's going to change, okay? And, and it's sort of like— y- Things don't just change for the better. <laughs> that does not just happen organically. What if you just throw off whatever's happening? Well, the only way that the only way that that can be prevented from turning into absolute mayhem and chaos is that a force stronger than the existing government comes in and forces order back upon society. Okay, you know, order is not the product of just it's not it's not a natural phenomenon say now i i recently went on uh, a, a bit of a rant about what constitutes natural and people who heard that that may grate against their ears right now but it doesn't just happen okay it requires prudent effort on the on the part of responsible people and it requires an element of coercion okay and so if if you just if you're one of these people who's like you know what we really need is for the existing order to completely collapse around us and then because of that, everything's going to be good. This is like this like accelerationist idea. If you think that that's real, you're dumb and you don't know anything about anything. OK, now, you know, there are some people who believe the existing system must be brought down and they are not foolish in believing what I just described. I'm not trying to straw man their position, but. There are people who hold that view that, you know. What is must not be and. Tearing down what is will axiomatically result in a better state of affairs. Well, that's by no means obvious. And if you believe that, then you haven't studied the left like at all. If you studied the left, you would understand that there's a reason that these people so chaos, right? That there's a reason that they riot in the street. There's a reason that they discredit the legal system with all their with all their maneuvering, right? 
You know, when when Roberta Kaplan sues me and Donald Trump and 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 innocent people are put in prison for not just not because they've been, you know, uh, accused of a crime they didn't commit, but because the thing they didn't the thing that they did was not a crime. Well, like that's a they're discrediting the legal system. They're trying to tear down the system. And, you know, people who want to participate in that and who are not leftists are, are misguided in the extreme, I would go so far as to say. And there's no shortage of them, of course, you know. But, you know, as I said, you know, maybe Howard Beale, of course, you know, he had a point to say that. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You know, people are just going to accept anything. Well, you know, that's not going to fly either. And so something's got to give, and I guess we're going to find out what it is. And I'm looking forward to speaking with all of you about it at 217-688-1433. Oh, let me do this. I should have done this at the beginning, of course. And there it is. Now, who has done this? Oh, that should not be, this should be quiet. Why are you making sounds? Why are you, excuse me. Come on, you know. What? I really, I can't, I can't catch up. I really can't catch a break, can I? Excuse me while I figure this out because it's kind of important. <laughs> Why would you be doing this to me? How about this? What if I do this? Speakers. You can't do this to me. You can't do this. There we go. Do that. There we go. All right. Thank you very much. There we go. Now I understand. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Now, I'll go, go, I'll go pull up some news. Since you guys are not going to pick up the phone and chat with me and make my job easy, I guess I'm just going to have to rely on Drudge Report. <laughs> um, and speaking of things completely coming unhinged, there's a story in NPR here. And, you know, NPR, if you want to know what's going on in the world, you just listen to NPR and they'll tell you that transgenderism is good for you and that you should eat bugs. And that's obviously, you know, what's, that's, that's how you find out why the country's falling apart is what I mean to get at. But they do, they are very attuned to things like threats against public officials and they are rising. And, you know, uh, NPR is about to tell us why. And I don't think that they're going to have a very good take on why, but they are certainly probably correct. I shouldn't say certainly. There's a high likelihood that they're correct about the threats increasing because people have absolutely had it with what's going on. But let's hear what NPR has to say about why. For extremism researchers, Antifa is a menace to society. Oh, my God. No, of course, NPR doesn't say that. The shooting death this week of a Utah man who is alleged to have made violent threats against President Biden and other public officials highlights a concerning trend. For years, they have watched a steady escalation in violent political rhetoric that appears to be fueling real-life acts of violence. 
On Wednesday, the FBI shot and killed Craig Robertson of Provo, Utah, as they attempted to arrest him due to his alleged threats ahead of a visit to Utah by Biden. Federal charges against the 75-year-old laid out a history of violent social media posts, not just about the president, but also a range of Democratic politicians and officials, including New York State Attorney General Letitia James, Vice President Harris, California Governor Gavin Newsom, and Attorney General Merrick Garland. And who would ever say anything bad about any of those people? Real swell folks over there. (laughs) But, you know, obviously it's very, very bad to make violent threats. I'm just saying. Many of Robert's alleged, Robertson's alleged pose contain specific locations, graphic descriptions of imagining watching his targets die, and photographs of firearms he appeared to have access to. The word assassination appears repeatedly, and the guns are referred to as Democrat eradication tools. Those kinds of details hit a tripwire for federal officials, said Seamus Hughes, a senior researcher at the National Counterterrorism Innovation Technology and Education Center located at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Hughes has tracked a number of federal arrests over uh, to public officials. I'm sorry. Hughes has tracked a number of federal arrests over threats to public officials over the last decade. In 2013, there were 38 such such arrests. Last year, there were 74. The trend began to escalate within the last five years. Most FBI interventions are a diversion program, is the header here. So a lot of the things we saw in there, you know, like they're not that unusual, unfortunately, says Hughes of Robertson's posting history. What is unusual, says Hughes, is for an interaction with the FBI to end in violence. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of tips they get about threats, and many times the FBI will knock on a door, say, what are you doing online? Knock it off. It's basically a diversion program, and those individuals will move on with their lives. The smaller subset, you have to bring up federal charges. According to the charging documents, Robertson allegedly told FBI agents in an initial visit that his flag post describes a dream rather than a serious intent. He reportedly demanded that they not return without a warrant and went on to post that the Bureau had, quote, no idea how close your agents came to violent eradication. Hughes says a significant number of individuals approached by the FBI in these cases say they're unaware their threats violate laws. They just thought it was protected by the First Amendment, which on its face people understand. That's ridiculous, he says. Well, there's actually nothing ridiculous about it. People believe that they have freedom of speech in America, and when you try to arrest them for their words, they can be surprised by that. Now, you know, I'm not saying that um, threats are protected speech. That's not the case. But it's not surprising that some people believe that, I, I think is my point. Hughes made the uh, rising number of arrests. Hughes says, I should say, the rising number of arrests is due to factors, including the case of making public threats via social media and increased focus from law enforcement on domestic extremism and what Hughes calls a cultural mood music that normalizes violent rhetoric. And I wonder where that came from. You think that NPR is going to tell us? Probably not. It's not just federal officials. A recent University of San Diego survey surveyed... A recent University of San Diego study surveyed local public officials in that city and found that 75% reported receiving threats and harassment. Women, it turned out, are disproportionately impacted. Oh, of course they are. And I bet people of color are disproportionately impacted, too. Why don't you go tell me more about that, NPR? Maybe you could dedicate a whole segment to it. 
It is figures on the political right who are primarily fueling this hostile environment, says Catherine Keneally. Oh, of course. You know, because uh, Antifa running around setting the country on fire all throughout 2020 and in the lead up to Donald Trump's election and all of that stuff, that's mostly peaceful, you have to understand. As long as it's mostly peaceful, it's fine, okay? So when you run around shooting people, you got to make sure you shake the majority of their hands, okay? You got to, this is how you do mass shootings now, okay? When you, you go out, for, for every two hands you shake, you shoot somebody in the face. And then all, your mass shooting is mostly peaceful, you understand? As a matter of fact, you know, in that case, a, a whole 66% of your interactions are great. You're like, hey, nice to meet you. My name's my name's uh, mass shooter. Don't tell the FBI that I was here, okay? Because I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to you. You, hey, nice to meet you. I like shooting people, but not you, friend. I like you. You're gonna live today. Bang to the next one. That's how you do it. And then then two thirds of your interactions with the public are perfectly fine. And then CNN will excuse you for that. I don't think that it'll actually work out for you. So don't follow that. That's not advice, okay? It's definitely not legal advice. I'm not qualified to give that sort of thing. I'm just mocking leftists. That I'm really good at. I'm qualified to do that. And so, you know, this Catherine Keneally woman, she's a senior researcher at the nonprofit Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Although their vitriol isn't just directed against Democrats and public officials. No, it's also directed against Mitch McConnell because he's working for you scumbags. But this is pretty funny. The Institute for Strategic Dialogue, of course. Yeah. So go out, you know, have a conversation with people, you know, go talk to your political enemies. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, you just send a massed mob of anarchists with Molotov cocktails after them. And then it's strategic, you understand. What I think is important to note is that Republicans are also being threatened by members of their own party, she says, often due to perceptions of being insufficiently loyal to conservative principles or figures. Just least last week, ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, uh, tracked threats from pro-Trump voices against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as he faced criticism for telling New Hampshire voters he was, quote, going to start slitting throats of, quote, all these deep state people if he elected president. While the threats may target a bipartisan array of public officials, data from the last decade shows that 96% of murders in the U.S. linked to political extremism are committed by right-wing actors. Because if you are a left-wing actor and you kill somebody, that's not political motivation. You understand? You're just fighting for racial justice. You understand? Okay? So none of the murders that were occurring in the arson and rioting in 2020, those police officers and everybody else who had been murdered by leftists, those are not political—that's fighting for racial justice is what that's called, okay? More than half of 2020 voter, Trump voters surveyed believe the opposite is true, and that's because they can see what happens in front of their own eyes. It's very important to know. The Salt Lake Tribune has reported Robertson's neighbors, some who had seen his social media posts, uh, broadly characterized him as harmless, cranky old guy who helped the community members out with woodworking projects. The violent language he used has migrated from the fringes of the Internet to become a more common part of daily life, says Keneally, who lives in Montana. Oh, well, why don't you go take a visit to Whitefish? I can go out my front door or hear a conversation and the things that he was posting online, I can hear at a bar. I can hear in line at my grocery store. It's not very uncommon by any means. Well, if you're at the grocery store and people are talking about murdering leftists, that might tell you something about your own behavior, you know. 
If you're just like walking, you're like, I'm going to go buy me some uh, some soy milk and whatever. And then you're sitting at the, you're, you're, you know, you're walking. You wouldn't be sitting at the grocery counter unless you're in a wheelchair, which is a distinct possibility if you keep it up. But I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, you're not in a wheelchair yet, presumably. And so, you know, when you're at the grocery counter and the person in line behind you is like, yeah, I hate those Democrats and I hope they die. Maybe that tells you something about your behavior. <laughs> Keneally says she tries to promote vigilance, not panic, about individuals adopting this kind of speech. That's right. You just want to have people be vigilant. You want people to call out right-wingers for their extremism, probably, right, Ms. Keneally? I wonder why people are talking about the death of Democrats next to you in line at the grocery store. Maybe it's all that vigilance going a little bit overboard, you think? I wonder if maybe if you were going out and saying, hey, maybe we should stop threatening Donald Trump. Maybe if we stop threatening to violently overthrow the government, maybe if when maybe if when a bunch of anarchists with guns declare independence and murder people at the uh, chop, the Capitol Hill autonomous zone, the Chaz thing, maybe when they put up a sign that says you are now leaving the United States and they kill people for trying to enter their territory, we call that insurrection instead of people who visit the Capitol, you know. If people like go into the Capitol building and they're like, yeah, you know, I support Donald Trump. And then you throw them in prison and then other people are like, yeah, we murder people who enter our non-American territory that was once American soil. One of these things is an insurrection and the other isn't. You throw in prison the person who's, you know, entering the Capitol. People are capable of picking up on the incentives of that, sadly. But, you know, just keep on doing this and you'll keep on hearing things in line at the grocery store. In many ways, they don't just wake up and say, yeah, the government's coming for me. That's not what happens. They've had these narratives pushed to them over and over and over again, says Keneally, by far-right media figures who profit from amplifying emotionally resonant narratives about both real and perceived struggles. Oh, yeah. Unlike people who listen to NPR and think that trans rights is the most important issue, right? Unlike people who are like, I don't know, maybe you're black or low income or you're an immigrant or you're gay and then you turn on NPR and you're like, yes, Nazis are coming to murder you. But just relax because the Democrat Party's going to solve that. Totally different. The election official in Georgia or the health official in Wisconsin who does not have his apparatus to lean on if they get threats does not understand how to protect their personal information online, doesn't really know if they want to get into the arena of public debate on these types of things. That's really where my concern is, Hughes says, who emphasizes that even a rising number of arrests for such threats represent a relatively small number compared to the population. Violent threats against public officials, he says, tend to spike around the moments of crisis or major news events. And as those become daily occurrences, then you might understand how people are, you know, perceiving an increased amount of them. Because if every single day there's a catastrophe, then people might do this more frequently. So, you know, we have we have another event like COVID or another event like an election, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if we have another event like an election, in the uh, off chance there might be an election in the future, you know, you never know what might happen then. So we might want to prevent that from happening. <laughs> you have a subset of people that are angry and they've been told to be angry and they're focusing their energy on whatever they need to in terms of to show their anger, Hughes says. Few details about what led up to the FBI shooting of Robertson have so far been released, which Hughes says is already helping to drive conspiratorial theories about the deadly encounter, comparing it to past federal law enforcement encounters that have ended in violence. 
They're comparing it to Ruby Ridge. They're comparing it to Waco. And it's just likely that we're seeing what we're seeing is that this is just fueling those same narratives that he was concerned about to begin with, you know, which is totally different, totally different phenomenon from when there's a police video of some black criminal attacking the police officers with a knife and then the police officers shoot him. And then they say, this is the KKK hunting people out of racial animus, totally different phenomenon. And so we're glad to have NPR explain that to us. 217-688-1433. If you'd like to be on the program and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Caller, you are on Outlaw. Uh, you're on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you tonight, sir? Hello, this is Hatting in Florida. Hello, Hatting in Florida. What's going on, buddy? Okay. Now, uh, I've had uh, some mixed opinions about this song, Mr. Oliver Anthony's song. Um. Uh, the most extreme negative opinion I've seen of the song was this guy Franson in Montana, who uh, just seems to regard it as uh, uh, alcoholic loser complaining, basically. That's, that seems to be how he looks at it. Actually, he's a little stronger than that. But that's basically how he views the song. And I can understand his perspective there because there is a big strain of that in country music. A lot of country music has a kind of a defeatist, uh, uh, loser mindset, like George Jones, for example. I'm drunk again. Oh, God. <clears throat> but... um this uh, song by Oliver Anthony is can't be really reduced to that. It has uh, some good things about. Are you hearing me? Yeah, uh, you just cut out for a second. It had some good things about, and then I heard a touchstone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This song it has some good things about it. It's not just complaining. Um, he's saying at least one important thing needs to be said that you don't normally hear which is that he's, he's saying that this country is not a meritocracy. This country is unjust to the people who allow it to survive. Um, uh, and also that the, the, there are enemies, the rich men are the enemies of the real Americans, and also there are Poor parasites, right? Um, I got a neighbor here who's uh, listening. He wants to say something. By all means. Yeah, get, get over here, Will. Is this a camp, Will? Yeah, hello. My name is Willis. What up, Willis? I want to talk to you. My name is Willis. I live next door with Mr. Hattie. I want to say something about that song there. You know, that, that song there, he said, people like me... People like you, you when some red there saying people like me, people like you, what you think that means? I think that means um, normal people. You know what? I don't think he's talking about no black man there. You but, know, especially he's talking about uh, uh, you know uh, people buying fuzz rounds with their EBT card. He ain't talking about no white man for that. I I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 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 sir, 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 you got to slow down because. I, if I'm having trouble hearing you, if I'm having trouble understanding your words, the white folks in the audience are definitely having a hard time with it. Can you slow down a little bit? What What did you just say after uh, uh, my response? I didn't catch it. If I want to spend my EBT on fuzz rounds, I've got the right to do it. It's a free country. 
Well, you know, that's the kind of the problem, I think, when people believe that that's the definition of um, free. You know, this breeds contempt for the people who pay for it, I think, is what he's describing. Well, you know what? Everybody listens to that song. And hear you talking about people getting food assistance. And then say people like me, people like you. He goes, they going to know what that means. You know, that's obviously a racist song. Well, okay. oh, you're saying it's I, I obviously a racist back. song. Well, you know, I think that there's, you know, that some people have speculated that that's what he's referring to. But of course, you know, sir, I, I don't think it's so much the, um, I don't think it's so much the black people with their EBT that he's complaining about, as it is the rich men north of Richmond, who, you know, there's some speculation that that's an anti-Semitic reference, and I think that, you know, I'm not saying it is. I wouldn't want to accuse the man of anything, but you know, there's there's reason to suspect that. And, of course, you know, we wouldn't be dealing with, you know, some of these EBT issues were it not for them, clearly. Okay. Well, that was Willis. Uh, he kind of noses in on what I'm doing here sometimes. Yeah, I didn't figure uh, you'd be hanging around with a guy like Willis. But, you know, it's good that you're getting some uh, some cultural enrichment, Hatting. It gets hot down here. I sit out on the porch and, you know, sometimes the nosy neighbors here. There you go. So. Get a little lemonade together, you know, bond, have some diversity. Uh, I don't want to encourage him. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, the song, it, it, it does have this one value to it. It does say uh, that this system is seriously messed up, which you don't ever hear uh, Michael J. Knowles pointed out. You don't ever hear that from country music. All right. right. Country music says stuff like, we'll put a boot up your ass because we're America. Bull crap like that. Right. right. Uh this is a seriously complaining song, which is good. I mean, that's a good thing. Um, but Michael, Michael J. Knowles made some good criticisms of the song. He pointed out that this song, he used a word that I've used, which is that the lyrics are confused, right? Because uh, even though you've got this overall theme of deep dissatisfaction, the, the details of the lyrics are largely cliches, right? You've got, uh, he says, people starving in the streets. Well, Michael J. Knowles points out, people are not starving in the streets in the USA. Nobody is starving in the USA. If anybody looks like they're starving, they're probably on heroin or something. Well, that's the thing. Uh, you know, the idea that there are people in the streets that ain't got nothing to eat, and that's because other people are getting fat off welfare is not, you know, it's not borne out by reality, I guess. Um, and those, those narratives are, you know, if you're, if you're in the streets and you got nothing to eat, it's because you have chosen not to take advantages of the benefits that are provided to you that the fat people are, are, are buying their, um, fudge rounds with. And that's, uh, you can well, understand I mean, why people would yeah. be disinclined to do that. And so, you know, that, that exists, but I understand what you're saying. If, if you, if you're in a city, you can hardly escape people trying to give you food, actually, uh, uh, but, uh, <clears throat> dang, what was the other thing I was going to say? Shit. Okay, I've, I've, it slipped my mind here. Uh, okay, I guess I have to go then. What's wrong? <laughs> oh, you're, you're, you, oh, because you're running out of things to say? Okay. Uh, I, I had something and it slipped my mind completely. But okay. anyway, yeah, Michael J. Knowles, he, he made some very good, uh, criticisms. And, um, uh, um, uh, in, in a way, the song does kind of. He said it. Well, it's not a neo-Confederate. Well, excuse me, but when you're complaining about Washington D.C., 
and you're emphasizing that it's up north, it does sound a little bit neo-Confederate. <clears throat> All right. Well, I guess I'll go now. All right. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. 217-688-1433. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. And, you know, one of the other things I thought was kind of interesting about that song, you know, um, there was uh, there's that one line. He says, uh, I wish politicians would look out for miners, not just miners on an island somewhere. And I'm like, OK, this is probably I hear it. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I remember seeing on the news that America's really concerned about, you know, miners, people who are working in a mine who are in some foreign country, and we've just got to go help those people or something. That's what I assume that he's referring to. And then it occurs to me that, like, well, maybe that's not what he's referring to. Maybe he's referring to, yeah, I wish that politicians would look out for people who work in mines in the United States and not be very concerned with what people under the age of majority are up to on an island somewhere, such as perhaps the island owned by one Jeffrey Epstein, right? <laughs> I wish politicians would look out for minors and not just little kids on an Epstein island, I think is kind of the translation of that, if you look at it from that view. And there was like this, um, somebody posted, I think I mentioned briefly, I didn't go into any great detail on it. Apparently his YouTube channel, he's got a playlist on there. And I, uh, the, the, the title of the playlist was something to the effect of videos that'll make your noggin bigger. And uh, among them <clears throat> was a reference to um, dancing Israelis. And if you uh, you and if that phrase rings familiar to you, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I would not dare try to explain it on surreal politics. So you're just going to have to understand that for yourself. And um, you know, there's that two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you'd like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Let's see. What should I do next? There's an OBGYN who decapitated decapitated a baby, and it's not it's not what you might assume because it's in the Huffington Post. So the Huffington Post is obviously not talking about abortion, which is happening all of the time, and which they think is awesome. They really, really like they really, really like decapitating babies at the Washington Post. So this must be an extraordinarily bad decapitation. Um, let's see here. What's this? Ah, uh, we don't want that. Um, da -da -da -da. what's that? Let's see. Oh, here's a fun one. Looks like, um, uh, Leah Thomas, uh, you know, that's the alias for the transgender freak who's ruining everything. He might be out of sports forever. Um, somebody lied about a cancer charity. Why not? There's that. Not that. No. Yeah, that's probably interesting, but maybe uh maybe we'll do this. So there's a piece over at um return.life. This was linked to from Revolver by James Poulos, and he asked the question, who killed the dissident left? One journalist's suspicious death would forever transform how they cover the deep state. So apparently, you know, you you can understand, you know, the left, they you know, they're ultimately the tools of power. They're, you know, sowing chaos in order to bring down not the systems per se, but, you know, all the restraints on it, of course. They don't like the Constitution and that sort of thing. They don't like the idea that there's limits on what the government can do to you, you see. 
And so they mean to bring down the existing order, not because they think it's oppressive, but because they are hell-bent on having complete and total control. And even the iron fist of the United States government, such as it is, just really doesn't suit them very well. They really, they're like, hey, look, you know, what do you mean you still call things your own? You know, the idea that you could be, you know, talking about ownership is just completely unacceptable to them. And we'll get back to that right after we take this call. Caller, you are on, uh, the, how did I do this twice tonight? You're on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you, friend? Hey, how's it going, buddy? I want to talk about that song that everybody's uh, getting up in arms about. Please do. Um, I think I think uh, I think the song is a I think it's generally a good thing. I think it's a good way to kind of gauge, I guess, public awareness to some of our issues. I mean, the fact that the guy doesn't explicitly talk about racial politics or. Uh, I guess uh, the JQ, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, that's to be expected, don't you think? And, but I think, I think he's kind of tapping, I think he's unwittingly tapping into the same kind of energy that Donald Trump knowingly tapped into in 2016. I think that, you know, white Americans are really starting to uh, feel the pressure. And so they're making a folk hero out of this guy who's finally giving voice in artistic form to that feeling that they've uh, they've been wanting to, to express. You know what I mean? Let me just, um, I should apologize to listeners who are only getting that in one ear. The people who are downloading the podcast later on, um, I don't know what's going on. That can't be the caller's fault. I'm just observing it on my end, and I'll try to fix that after the show. Not sure what's going on, but I can still hear you, sir. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is this is the way pe- most people experience things, okay? What they're what they're noticing, <clears throat> what they're noticing is not an ethnic conflict necessarily. What they are noticing is that they're not happy, <laughs> and they're not even necessarily aware of why they're unhappy. They're 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 just they're noticing that it is a consequence in some way of the people who deem themselves fit to run society, and the people who are running society, you know, keep on trying to run more and more of it. And they're doing an exceedingly poor job, or at least that's the perception of the people who are being negatively impacted by all of this. But the people who are running society, it seems, they think it's going great because clearly they're evincing a design to destroy things and make, you know, the people generally, but a specific group of people in particular, very, very, very unhappy. That's that seems to be their 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 aim. That's their purpose. And so the fact that they are um, continuing to do that is is understandably upsetting these folks. Yeah, well, I think uh, I was mentioning earlier to some of my uh, some of my buddies that like if if a song like this had come out like 20 years ago, probably would have gone completely under the radar and unnoticed because I think public consciousness was at a point where it wasn't really ready to accept it. You know what I mean? Or it's not really we aren't we aren't feeling the things that he's talking about in this uh in this song i mean i kind of think of the song almost like a i don't know like like maybe like something like a folk song that like the irish would sing in in uh in opposition to british occupation or something you know what i mean like the fact that we're at a point where a ton of people are 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 uh glomming onto this kind of thing and accepting it and it's resonating with them i think it's a good marker of uh 
where you know white consciousness is so yeah i don't i guess i don't really understand why people are nitpicking the the nitpicking it and just undermining it and i think that i think the phenomenon is there's a couple of things to it you know you expect this from a certain segment, as I mentioned, you know, the people who are like, yeah, stop whining about taxes, poor people. You know, those people are, you know, shall we say the usual suspects? They are unambiguously the, the rich men north of Richmond. Um, the, the people who are doing this on the right, you know, maybe some of them are sincerely misguided. But I think that, as I mentioned in, in the beginning of the show today, you know, when I observe this in my Telegram chat, the, this is coming largely from people who like have never commented before. And I had the same thing sort of happen after um, I was on the uncensored production. I had a, I had a controversial guest on and a bunch of people came to be basically came to the chat after that, you know, you know, variously saying things that you could categorize as if you're not running around with a swastika and going to sacrifice your life in Ukraine, then you're just trying to, you know, you know, work for the rich men North of Richmond. And, uh, you know, and, and the song hadn't even come out then. So, you know, these people can predict the future. Uh, and so, you know, <clears throat> I think that there's a subversive element, I guess. And that subversive element, you know, probably influences some sincere people. And so when, you know, you can't just assume that everybody who says it is a bad actor. But, you know, that's fundamentally what's driving a lot of this. You know, you know, there's a, there's a malcontent faction. People who are like, I can't, I can't tolerate the idea that anything could be good, you know, and that that's a left wing phenomenon, right? You know, the idea that you know, just you have to tear down anything positive, is a left wing phenomenon, which is why I tell people on the right all the time, like trying to go and, you know, make inroads with the left is a is a disaster. The libertarians tried this, and you're not going to get anywhere. You go recruit malcontents, and they're just that's what they are. It's they're congenitally incapable of happiness. And so whenever anything good happens, they're like, well, let me tell you about all the bad things to do with this. And it's like, well, you know, can the guy just like can you just have some guy go and I don't know, make it to the top of iTunes while complaining about a general state of affairs? Can you be happy for him, maybe? And, you know, the, the people who can't, you know, there's a variety of say pathologies driving that but that's what they are they're pathologies or they're you know it's it's either a pathology or it's malice and you know you could describe malice as a pathology of its own if you wish yeah well i think we should be uh i mean if anything we should be uh instead of poo-pooing and deconstructing this this guy's song and the messaging in it we should be trying to speak speak some of his language because clearly it's uh it's resonating with people and he's not very far off from the goalpost, you know what I mean? Well, precisely. So, you know, when he, he, he released a video where he said that he was going to go do the show in North Carolina. And as soon as I found out about this, I put that on my Telegram channel because I know that I, I know that I've got listeners in that general vicinity, you know. And one of the things he said in the video was, you know, I'm going to go do this thing at 2.30 uh, p.m. But if I have to stay until 2.30 a.m., I'm going to stay here. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to listen to all of you. And like, wow, you know, isn't yeah. isn't that something? And so, like, you know, you have an opportunity to go talk to this guy who's currently at the top of the iTunes charts. Well, you know, that seems like a thing worth doing, I'd say. And if you tell him, hey, why aren't you why aren't you cursing people out? Why aren't you going and doing things that would certainly doom your career? I don't think you're going to have a very long conversation with him, of course. And so, uh, <laughs> I I think that the that, no, that's the thing, not. you know. You, you're not if you're not in the conversation, then you're not anywhere. And this guy's starting a conversation that you have a ability to participate in. 
Yeah, and like I said, I mean, there's this tendency within our circles to, to like, any kind of, like, deviation from our certain our dogmas is viewed as, as cucking, and I think it's I think it's entirely short-sighted to, to think like that. Like, we haven't been successful for a very long time. Obviously, there's a, a ton of other factors that go into that, but this guy is right on the nose and he's uh gaining a lot of popularity so i mean we should we should be speaking speaking this guy's kind of language to to people we interact with you know what i mean because once you start talking about the rich men north of of richmond it's uh two skips away from talking the, talking about the men who run goldman sachs you know what i mean <laughs> indeed they are and you know and and and, 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 and goldman sachs of course is um, you know, I think their offices are well north of Richmond, but um, I know what you mean, sir. <laughs> and so that's uh, exactly it. You know, yeah. look, you know, he's describing a like this is why people you know, the left went completely nuts about Donald Trump. OK, Donald Trump is surrounded by Jewish people. OK, but the left went completely crazy and he was opposed by like all these Jewish groups because he painted this image of an elite like riling up the lower classes in order to, you know, to feed on the middle class. OK. And that's that is what is known in left wing circles as an anti Semitic stereotype. Okay, and so like this is the same thing. He's talking about rich men north of Richmond and um, and uh, obese milking welfare. That's like they're terrified of that. They're like, oh my god, you're not allowed to think in those terms because that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> you know, that's truth, and we can't have you even approximating it because that would turn out very badly for us. They lose their minds about that. And so you know, if they're not happy, mm-hmm. then that should that should tell you something. And I mean. You know, not that these people are not not that it's uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. You know, it's not beneath their dignity to trick us. But, you know, those people who are in the audience who are enthusiastically singing because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Well, they're not a trick. You know, whatever you think about, you know, Oliver Anthony or or, or any, you know, thing to do with this phenomenon. Those people who are in the audience are, are people who you can talk to. And so. You know, sitting home and complaining about it on Telegram is certainly not going to help you do that. No, absolutely not. All right. All right. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Caller, you're on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you tonight? Hey, uh, yeah, I'm calling about the... uh Kind of the same topic on the on the country song that we're everybody's talking about. Right um, and what I've noticed, what I've noticed is that uh, you know all all day uh, the the disconcerting thing is that I see from our side. I think you had mentioned you know you have these these malcontents, and then you have pe- people that are, uh, I guess, deliberately kind of uh, kind of planting these these net negative seeds, and that's what I've seen a lot from our side. Um, Let's see. I, I've seen the, of course, the class warfare angle, the the sneering, uh, mocking of uh, hill people, country folks, and things like that. Yeah, somebody called which, him a bumpkin you know, in my some, Telegram chat today. I'm like, that gives you away as a bad actor, you know? Right, and and, and then there there's other prominent people that are posting, uh, basically saying this was a uh, a psyop by the GOP. That, that that was set up as I don't know some kind of strategy on 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 their part. It's it's almost um, it's just bizarre. And then you see people just 
buying it, hook, line, and sinker. People have looked into this. It's very unlikely based on when this thing was recorded in the first place. And I just look at these missed opportunities because we've had so many chances to come together on stuff like this. And you've got, you've got people that are either going to uh, scream and screech about him, not, you know, wearing full uh, 1930s military garb on stage (laughs) and, uh, and sticking his hand out in a certain, at a certain angle or not naming certain specific issues in, in every line of the song. And, you know, we don't, who even cares really if he is exactly what you want him to be in that respect? Who cares, you know? Well, clearly, you know, it, it, if you, it, you know, the idea that what you really need is people echoing every thought that's in your head. Well, you know what? What you're going to be very disappointed about that, right? That's going to leave that's going to leave your life very short on satisfaction, even if you do nothing but listen to podcasts of like mine. You know, because every once in a while, those people are going to veer from your conception of things, and so the idea that you know some guy has to uh, has to doom his career before he gets anywhere is is preposterous. And so, I think uh, I think you're you're echoing the ideas also of Confederate Patriot on uh, Odyssey. He sends five bucks and he says, "You guys are missing the forest for the trees." He's speaking in metaphor, and everything he is saying is based as hell. Don't overthink. Uh, LOL. And you know <clears throat> whether or not that's his intention, I I certainly think that you know th- the outcome is that it it's causing people to you know analyze the the framework of the um, the problems that they're facing. So, and, and you can't go wrong with that, you know. Now, I, I'm a little bit concerned. I mean, I'm I'm not, I don't think, as I said in the, you know, the introduction today, like, I don't think it's a cost-free, unalloyed good that people are like, yeah, I'm mad at my government, right? Like, that's actually, you know, there, there are problems associated with that which are, you know, unpredictable, shall we say. But, you know, if you want to have any say in what follows that scenario, you know, the, the idea is to, you know, be present in the conversation. You know, you could have gone to that concert, you could have sang along with the song, and then you could have sat at the bar with one of these people. Now, you know, I'm not telling people that they should uh, be drinking, I'm just saying. Uh, you know, you could have sat at the bar and talked to these people afterwards if you wanted to. And if you went in there and you said, well, you know what it is, you know, it's, it's all about World War II. And they'd be like, you're out of your mind. You know, they wouldn't listen to what you had to say. You'd have to talk to them in in decidedly different terms. Well, rightfully so. I mean, you know, I I was I I watched the video that that you had referenced when he's doing this show in North Carolina. And, um, you know, I have been in crowds just as a younger man. I've been in crowds just like that. Um, It was it was great. It is it is an it kind of reminds you of something that that has died. Or, or, or that it feels like is is rapidly dying, and you just it just kind of hits you right in the right in the gut when you see things things like that. And then I watch pe- people saying this is not political. This is just a bunch of people sitting around getting drunk at a concert. Well, it's actually much more than that. And I mean, if if all you see is people getting drunk at a concert, I just I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, it's a big country. I guess there's lots of different experiences, but I don't get it. Well, you know, uh, and that's basically it. I, I, I appreciate it, my friend. I thank you very much for the call. You know, I think that we have yet to see, you know, what uh, what transpires from all of this. But I would go so far as to say that, you know, the idea that it's just a bunch of people getting drunk at a bar, that's certainly not the case. When you see a country music audience cheer for 
all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Something is happening, and that is yeah, that's a thing to be examined at the very least. Caller, you're on surreal politics. What can I do for you? Uh, sir Cantwell, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. Thanks so much for asking. How are you? All right. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was. Uh, I guess we're talking about the country song. Uh, what going on with that? But I was. Uh, can I change the subject and By talk a little means, bit friend, about this? You? Is, this show is for you, man. This is your show. What do you? What can All I right. do for you? Uh, yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've known of you since the Ron Paul days when you uh, blew away the American flag. Oh. And I thought, who's this bloke? <laughs> but, uh, I don't know, with this thing we have, I've noticed we have a lot of uh, personalities grappling for attention. So, um, and I've alluded to you while talking to other influencers and I was like, you know, do we really need to throw our radicals under the bus? So, essentially, I was like, do you think it's possible for you to reach out to more influencers? Because now that you're back on the scene, I think you could reach a lot more people because you've obviously had a sort of come-to-Jesus moment with uh, your radicalism. Well, you know, I think... Um I think that my uh, relationship with radicalism is probably more in tone than in substance, of course. But uh, I have been attempting to, with uh, a degree of success, I should add. You know, one of the one of the important things that probably too few people understand about my productions is that they are listened to by influential people who would not admit to it, <laughs> um, and right. and and that that extends both within the space known as the dissident right and outside of that, as a matter of fact. And so when I'm on this show, you know, I am uh, I am speaking to those people to some extent. But, uh, you know, I could probably afford to do more um, public engagement with those types for sure. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you give me an opportunity on the Uncensored production this coming Friday. I'll be speaking with a man known as uh, J.F. Gare- I, I I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Gareppi, Gareppi. I, I call him Gareppi. Maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. There's an I in there. But uh, J.F. Gareppi, J.F.G. tonight, he's going to be on the sh- the Uncensored show this Friday. Um, I'm talking to, uh, I think I'm going to soon be speaking with a man by the name of Mark Collette. Uh, and so, oh, yeah. 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 And so, you know, when I first got out, you know, my social status has gone up and down a little bit over the years. And so... I uh, I figured I should it would be prudent for me to build my power level before I started trying to engage with other personalities, and I think that uh, I think I've done that, and so we're we're making an effort to have more engagement with other personalities. I was recently featured on a show called Night Nation Review. I've been featured on White Rabbit Radio, and uh, you know yes. I am I am you know in communication <clears throat> with some of these folks. You know I don't invite myself well, on what other about, shows. Uh... So, go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I was going to say, well, have, have you had any contact with, say, people at uh, VDARE or Amran? As a matter of fact, I just uh, I just exchanged a few emails with uh, Peter Brimelow himself, and um, I, mm. I was actually talking to them about publishing my uh, closing argument from the Charlottesville trial. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, Mr. Brimelow was very busy in the lead up to that, and so we didn't uh, come to terms on the on the um, on the publication prior to press time, but uh, I believe that they are going to have one of their writers um, uh, make some mention of this in the, in the near future. And so, 
Uh, but I am in contact with the people at VDare, and uh, they are good folks indeed. Uh, and what was the other? You said who did you say aside from VDare? Oh, Amran, Amran, American Renaissance. So I have not spoken to anybody at Amran. You know, something stands out in my mind. You know, in the in the lead up to um, the 2017 Virginia demonstration, I was on a. I jumped on. I was invited onto a stream that had. Um, What's his name? Jared Taylor and Ramsey Paul were right. on it. And like two seconds after I got on the stream, they jumped off. Um, they <laughs> and now this is, you know, this is more than six years ago at this point. So, you know, who knows how they feel about me today? But, you know, I understand it's not. Well, Ramsey Paul has alluded that if anybody talks about you, they're basically a uh, light in the loafers, shall we say. I know we we. Keep it censored here, correct? That's interesting. So that's that. You know, that's a new one. I, you know, it's a, that's a that's a that's a fascinating theory. You know, I understand people who have you know varying different opinions about me, and and not all those people have right. malice in their hearts. I, I don't think that that's the case at all. But the idea that somebody would be, uh, as you say, light in the loafers for having anything to do with me, that is not uh, that does not bear. You know, even the most malicious liar would have a trouble uh, uh, positing that theory, and that's that's fascinating. Well, um, here's another question I have. Uh, I mean, you definitely have the gift of gab. Thank you. Um, what about uh, pursuing a law degree? Have you, I mean, while sitting in a cell, you had to have contemplated that. Well, you know, um, it, it, it did not, let me put it this way. Other people have mentioned that to me, and as a consequence of that, it has been forced into my mind. It is not something that I, on my own, would seek to pursue. Now, uh, I could very easily imagine Why? myself. Well, because actually, like, law is a lot of tedious stuff. It, it is very different from yes. uh, being a, a talk show host. And even, you know, right. I, it, it is fortunate that I have watched a lot of law and order and, you know, this sort of thing and, and sort of had my issues with the legal system prior to uh, prior to the uh, the situation in Virginia because I understand, you know, a few things about how a courtroom works, and I was actually had a, a very wise counsel from a man by the name of Bill White and another man by the name of Matt Hale in the lead-up to the trial. They, they sort of, you know, those guys actually have some study in law, and they gave me, you know, information about how to behave in a courtroom, and that served me very well. I also read a book, a very good book. Um, I should probably mention this one more frequently. Um, um, Doesn't Hurt to Ask by Trey Gowdy. Um, and Trey Gowdy is not uh, slash our guy slash, but... You know, he's a uh, he's it was a I forget if he was a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. He was in the United States government in any case. And he used to be a prosecutor in South Carolina. And um, he, he talks about questions in the context of influence, you know, persuading people with questions. And, you know, especially in the case of cross-examination, <clears throat> you ask yes or no questions that are designed to elicit the answer you want, okay? And so, you know, reading that book actually right. was, was remarkably helpful. In my cross-examinations, which somebody recently published, by the way, I was like, whoa, you know, I, I, I was kind of shocked that, um, you know, when I got out, I was like, oh, nobody recorded this thing? And I was kind of upset about it. I, I was hoping I would be able to hear it. And, uh, you know, the, the all this time has gone by, and apparently somebody leaked it to Gab, um, um, Dissident News or something, uh, dissent. Let me go find it. Actually, I should probably plug that guy because I definitely want to mention that on the show. Give me one second while I find this. Um, <clears throat> there was uh, somebody leaked to Gab. It was a, it was an account called. Um, I have so many Gab notifications. This is good. Um, it, it was an account <laughs> called. 
one of these days I'm going to find it, and the account is called... All right. Anyway, so I'll find it uh, when I'm not on the phone with you and wasting your time. But in any case, somebody leaked them to Gab and and they are listenable now. And if you listen to those things, as a matter of fact, there's the they leaked my uh, my cross examinations of Natalie Romero, Devin Willis, Seth Wispelwee and um, and Peter Simi, their white supremacy expert. And uh, as a consequence of if you listen to them in that order, you get the full grasp of like, oh, it's Descent Watch is the Gab account. Descent Watch on Gab has published a a zip file that contains those four cross examinations. And if you listen to them in order, uh, as I just as I just described them, you get the full picture of me getting better as time goes on because as i walked into a courtroom as i as i described in my uh episode of the uncensored production titled closing argument but like i was totally unprepared for this but as time went forward i was getting better at at what i was doing in the courtroom and by the time i got to mr Simi, wow did i embarrass these people and so you know but anyway in the lead up to this the, the thing is that so the reason that I don't pursue a law degree, first of all, I'm almost 43 years old, and the idea that I'm going to start law school at this age is kind of crazy. Putting aside for the fact that it's very expensive. Well, I've heard of 80-year-olds doing it. Why not you? <laughs> I don't know that I've ever heard of an 80-year-old beginning law school. That would seem something that would be very that would be in that would be that, that, that was so. some boom, boomer trope, I guess. You know, you're never too never too old. I don't believe you know, that. You know, I, I believe that there are some things you're too old to do. And and so, like, you know, I'm even I'm a guy who's been involved in tech my whole life and trying to, like, get up to speed on technology after being away from it for three years is proven more challenging to me than I would have imagined. And so the idea that I'm going to learn sure. a new trade at 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 43 is kind of it's it seems like a daunting task at the very least. And what you would notice if you yeah, would, but you are verbally combative, you know, I mean, you, you have. Most law school is you know, not most law. Most law is handled in the form of paperwork, sadly. And so, like everything, uh, yes, yes, everything sir, yes, that sir. I did in the lead up to the trial mm-hmm. was a failure. Okay, so like all of the well, all consider of the failing, this though. As far as big picture goes, I mean, who do we have that's going to defend us in court if we don't have a C count in there with us? You well, know, to to help back us up when we find ourselves overextended and docked this is a this is a real phenomenon and so you know the the task there i would say is for one for people uh men younger than i with better organizational skills to go into the field of law and i would certainly you know i'm certain that there are um some young people who listen to the show and i would encourage them that you know if they're the type of people who go into school and they ace tests and whatnot that they could do a lot they could do a lot worse for themselves than to become lawyers for sure now um but and also one of the tasks ahead of us, I would say, is that we would do very well to um, to go out and in and find people who are already in that trade and try to uh, alert them to our concerns and, and get them to share those concerns. And then that would have us better situated to deal with the likes of Roberta Kaplan. Now, um, it, the, the thing is that uh, what we're facing is a situation where, okay, when I went into the courtroom, I did a very good job because I'm very good at talking. And, of course, if you read my yes. submissions to the court in the lead up to this situation, they're eloquently written. They're just they're just not competent legal documents. And so, like, I was, I, I was perpetually defeated in all of my pretrial motions. Okay, now, of course, you know, I don't think that that's entirely disconnected from the fact that the, the court was predisposed towards favoring the, the, the plaintiffs in this case. That, that probably had something to do with it. But, 
you know, with with few exceptions, I was defeated at, at every stage of the pre-trial motions phase. And maybe I'd be better at that if I had um, if I went to law school. I think that that's all but that's that's certain, as a matter of fact. But, you know, it, I don't have any natural talent for the the organizational talent, the organizational skills required to be a lawyer is not something that that I find particularly natural to me. You know, I'm I'm not the you know, I'm, I'm good at doing a show because I'm like, yeah, well, all of your conventions can, you know, like, I, you know, I don't mind conflict. Put it that way. Um, that does not necessarily right. translate very well over to, um, you know, the practice of law. I think I follow you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> have you ever uh, spoke with uh, Jason Cohn of uh, No White Guilt? I have not. No. Um, maybe I should do that, though. I, I recognize that name. Um, and I think, uh, and I, and I could probably, well, he's an author. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, well, he used to speak at Amran and, uh, he apparently, um, got sick and tired of the, uh, the JQ issue. And, uh, apparently, uh, like, uh, Mark Colette, who you'll be speaking with, uh, took issue with that and, 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 and a minuscule topic as that seems to have created great dissent within uh, the influencer realms, and I was like, eh, you know, maybe a guy like you might be a unifier. You know well, where I'm going with that? Uh, you know, the idea that I'd be a unifier is an interesting theory. I, 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 would, <laughs> I, would, I would consider it an honor to be able to play that role. I'm making some effort at that, and, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, have, well, that, maybe I'll have that outcome. You know, my, my behavior to date, you know, has not been conducive to that outcome, obviously. And so I'm trying to change my behavior, you know. And that um, that is, uh, shall we say, you know, th- that is not something that happens with uh, without some difficulty. But I'm ch- I'm working on it. I follow. Well, sir, I think that's really all I have. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much for the call, and thank you for the high praise, my friend. Right. I, you know, if I, um, if uh, you know, the other thing is this. Uh, I, I'll tell you, just you know, on a, uh, my personal reaction to it is like i'm only recently coming to grapple with the obligations of my profession now um i've told you guys before probably elsewhere you know i've had bad things happen to my listeners okay and that is something that has troubled me i mean from the first time i heard about a bad fate befalling a listener i mean this is probably in 2014 that brought me to tears when i heard about it then you know and I've heard about a lot of things since. I, I've talked about two listeners have committed suicide. And I do not talk about the listeners who tell me they had a family problem or a legal problem or a financial problem. Okay, you know. Um, but suffice it to say, I've heard about two suicides and I hear about family, legal, and financial problems more often than that. And, um, you know, I have for a long time just <laughs> – it was actually dealing with the legal system that forced me to grapple with the fact that telling people – Oh, well, I'm a professional entertainer and you can't hold me responsible for all of these things. Well, you know, courts of law have done that now. And so I uh, I'm influenced by that in some extent where I say, well, you know, that doesn't fly anymore. You know, I'm response. I have a I have a degree of responsibility, I should say. So it's not my fault what you do with your life very clearly. Okay, but 
it is something that I have to grapple with that, yes, as a matter of fact, people listen to what I say and they take it seriously. And if the people who are listening to what I say turn around and, you know, and find themselves in bad situations and that comes as some consequence of following instructions that or, or what they perceive to be instructions coming from the show, um, you know, that is not something that I can simply ignore. And so, you know, anyway. And, oh, but the reason I say that is because, well, if I represent somebody in court, you know, say, say I was James Fields' lawyer, and I represented him in court, and then he was convicted anyway and sent to prison for the rest of his life. You know, I don't know that I have the disposition to deal with that, honestly. You know, and I, and I, I understand that that's got to be difficult for anybody, but I think that, you know, there, you know, there's a certain... There's a certain capacity to disconnect oneself from things that <clears throat> I don't know that I possess that because that would really trouble me. If I represented some innocent guy and then he was sent to prison for the rest of his life and, you know, couldn't pay me to spend the rest of my life trying to help him out, <laughs> I might I might neglect my other obligations. Right. Like I'd be like, no, I'm personally responsible for this and I got to go chase down justice in this insane world. You know, I don't know that I could do that. I'm really grateful to the people who can, you know, because they're necessary. I'm just, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, sh I'm not sure I'm suited to fill that role. So if any, uh, if any of you would like to be heard, get on the phones now, because if I don't hear from you soon, I am going to end the show. Let's see him. Let's see him. Do, 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 do. <laughs> That's pretty funny. No, I'm not going to read that. Um, let's see here. Over here. All right. So I'm going to, I'll pull up one more story. I'm going to read this thing about who killed the dissident left. I haven't read it before, but uh, it sounds interesting. And it does describe, I think, a real phenomenon that basically the left has just completely fallen in line with power, right? I mean, they were arguably always there. But I'm sure that a lot of people, you know, were leftists precisely because they thought they were, you know, fighting back against the system. That was certainly my that was my relationship with libertarianism, you know. And I sort of realized, like, no, like, you know, getting the government out of everything, that's actually not necessarily the, that's not the virtuous goal necessarily, right? Like, the government allows bad things to continue, and then they persist, and then they take over the government. And so... You know, you're not fighting the system by by declaring that it has no obligations, right? <laughs> you're you're giving these people license to not do their jobs, and that's certainly not good because, you know, idle hands they do they do bad things. That's not the exact quote, but you get the idea. And so this guy questions. Who killed the dissident left? And I guess we're going we're gonna to find out. One journalist's suspicious death would forever transform how they covered a deep state. This is James Poulos over at Return.Life. Ten years ago, Edward Snowden changed American history, but he changed the future, too. We're living in it. One week before, he lifted just a corner of the rug, carpeting our new regime. The one that now has all but replaced the country we knew. Americans tuning in to Real Time with Bill Maher heard a puzzling message from the world to come. Sitting between the Obamacare architect near a tandem and some third person I no longer remember sat one James Polis. 
Bill had steered the conversation toward the possibility of government overreached, and I cautioned the panel that just because the Bush administration had ostensibly shuttered its total information awareness project didn't mean the military-industrial complex, the intelligence community, or the administrative state weren't still actively pursuing exactly that. Not for the first time on that panel. I drew some funny faces, and not one ha-ha kind either. But yesterday's riddle is today's no laughing matter. So wait a second. Is he saying that he was on this panel? Because Polis is spelt differently in the byline and where he just said it there. So I'm a little bit confused. In the wake of Snowden's disclosures and others to follow, some of the most vociferous criticism of our government crossing the deep state Rubicon came not from the right but from the left. In the long, often sad 2010s, if you came not from the, I'm sorry, if you wanted to hear from people mad about the malevolent government, angry about corporate corruption, wary of globalization agenda, and fired up about protecting the little guy, chances are you had to look to the so-called dissident left. I should know. Not me, but this guy who's writing the piece. After the financial crisis blew out my hopes of landing a 10-year track job in the academic, uh, in academic political theory, I'll wait for you to finish laughing, he says, I left the Beltway Swamp for the relatively noble and upright world of Hollywood, whereas... <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I left the Beltway Swamp for the relatively noble and upright world of Hollywood, whereas a disaffected conservative fronting an indie rock band, I was the perfect token right-winger for high-profile new media brands like Vice, Good Riot, The Huffington Post, and The Young Turks. I worked with them all and, yes, made lots of trendy friends. We were cresting a wave, riding the dragon, speaking our minds. We were the thorn in the side of the increasingly smug and aloof Obama administration, the one that began America's proud tradition of painting rainbow colors on killer robots tasked to take out those unfortunate souls listed on its so-called disposition matrix. One name that didn't appear on any list, at least none leaked or otherwise made public, belonged to one of the rising stars in my circle of hot media friends. His name was Michael Hastings. Michael skyrocketed to fame as a real-deal conflict journalist, the kind that made Vice's potentate Shane Smith a very wealthy man. Michael had both access and the balls to take down Obama's talk dog in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal, with a single kill shot of his own, one scorching story in Rolling Stone magazine. I wasn't part of Michael's inner circle, but I was close enough to see firsthand what he had helped achieve, a creative, confident nerve center of anti-establishment politics in the heart of Los Angeles, centered around Oliver Stone and expanding across time zones to include the likes of Glenn Greenwald, who had recommended me as an in-studio guest to the Young Turks before he became an enemy of the state. But Glenn, as you probably know, is still with us, alive and well, and the same, alas, cannot be said of Michael. A scant 12 days after Glenn first published Snowden's bombshells, Michael's Mercedes and Michael behind the wheel veered abruptly off the pavement, traveling south on Highland Avenue just past Melrose across the Matzah Pizzeria and impacted one of the tall, glamorous palm trees lining the median. The vehicle instantly burst into flames and charred the victim beyond recognition. The incident took place shortly before 4.30 in the morning that dark Tuesday. BuzzFeed chief Ben Smith, who Michael had on, who had Michael on payroll, told the press he was shocked and devastated. But words like that, words like that, 
couldn't capture the body blow that caved in the hearts of Michael's friends and the loved ones and swiftly shattered the dissident media scene that he had proven to be the heart of. So began what became the systematic roll-up of the dissident left, eventually sidelining even Bernie Sanders and transforming the Democrats from a party with a bipartisan base mobilized against corruption, globalization, and militarization into one where both the elites and the foot soldiers were slavishly devoted to all those once terrible things. I don't know exactly what happened to Michael that terrible night, but I didn't tell the press when they came calling that I knew where Michael had been before he climbed into his car agitated but very unsuicidal and began what he had intended to be a quick trip out of town i knew the last two people he had spoken to before he died and i knew what he had said to them i knew something was very wrong and i knew nobody was going to find out what it was no investigation into michael's death was forthcoming his coroner's report was unceremoniously sealed he had disappeared into a hole as dark and obliviating as any of his country's secret and illegal black sites, and so, in a sense, his country had done the same. I've never spoken public, uh, publicly about any of these details until now. Ten years of silence can do that to you. The list of people present at the creation of the first political media scene in the age of social media was short in 2013, and the list of those st- still kicking today is shorter still. There's never been a proper retrospective of just what happened to our government, our media, and the political institutions since Michael Hastings was so quickly removed from the national equation. Even though, with the benefit of hindsight, the strange concurrence of the death of new media and the death of the dissident left goes beyond the realm of the uncanny into the realm of the suspect, it stinks not just with the stench of death, but of the murder most foul. Well... He didn't tell us very much about this. I, I think um, he's ending it with a video. Let me just see real quick. This is a remember Vice. That's an hour long video. We're not going to be able to do it. So you can find this Return Life: Who Killed the Dissident Left by James Polos, P O U L O S. And the video that he has at the end of it is um, the historic self destruction of Vice and BuzzFeed Zero Hour with. Uh, well, I can't see the end of the title. J is it James something? The Zero Vice. Hour with James Polos. Oh, there we go. Okay, so you can go check that out if you like. He's introducing a podcast and leaving us hanging. Sorry, I didn't realize that. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you, friend? How you doing, Chris? Good to be on. Oh, I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for asking. What's going on with you? Uh, I just listened to the show. Uh, listening uh, quite recently, referred from a friend. Was it Nice Guy Nationals? He's a a viewer of mine and a viewer of yours, so he's been, uh, you know, talking about your show for a long time. I've been aware of you for for years, but you know, I took the time tonight to call in uh, and ask. I wanted to get your thoughts on what do you think about um, the right in the broad sense in this country uh, pushing for a more, you know, anti-war uh, message, getting away from the the, the typical reactionary bullcrap that we see. Uh, that is so mainstream from groups like, you know, Patriot Front and so on. Uh, you know, much of their rhetoric is going to these pride parades and protesting. What do you think about us being the anti-war movement or pushing for a, a more, uh, you know, oppo- of course, we opposing Israel and their interests, but, you know, speaking out against, you know, getting involved in these endless wars, especially after a pullout of Afghanistan. What do you think about that? So, you know, there has emerged several times over the course of the last six years the the 
peculiar phenomenon that the only people who are advocating against war are the people that are being accused of wanting to kill everybody. And the um, the irony of that is by no means lost on your humble correspondent. Um, and I think that it is a very sound thing that we um, that we discourage all of the reckless foreign interventions of the United States government that we've become so familiar with. I actually don't like the idea of being, quote, anti-war. I, like, I'm not against war. I think war is, like, I, I think war is actually, can be the highest virtue, say. Uh, I, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not anti-war. And so, like, you know, I just think that the conflicts that are being waged are so destructive of our own purposes that we should be against the conflicts that are being waged. And I and I am very hesitant. It sounds like you're agreeing with me. The idea of being anti-war is actually like destructive of that end, because the reason that I want us to be more circumspect in our foreign policy is that when there is time for a war to be waged, that we have, you know, stored up the resources and the energy and the support of our people so that we can go and lay waste to whoever it is that we happen to have a conflict with. And and the fact that we're exactly. with that the fact that we're just dumping all of our stockpiles into Ukraine so that Volodymyr Zelensky can hold on to power for a few more weeks that that you know that makes us less fit for war and that's that's why I oppose it. I very much agree. You know, and that's a that's a better view of it, uh, and where I'm coming from, very much uh, in, in agreement with what you're saying uh, that it shouldn't just be because you know war is necessary. It's necessary for the progression of man. Uh, there's a lot that comes from war, both there's a beauty and there's an ugliness of war. Uh, and we've seen that throughout the, you know, the many centuries throughout the Western world. Um, you know, great wars, great battles, great men have come and gone. Great nations have fallen and, and risen throughout war. Uh, so it is, a, it is a driving force for, uh, for progress for man. Uh, but the last few wars for this nation have been nothing but destructive. Uh, especially with you know our involvement in the Middle East for the the sake and, and defense of the nation of Israel and Saudi Arabia and all these different other nations that uh, hate us uh, very much. Yes, I agree. You know, and especially with the Ukraine stuff, uh, this is a war for the establishment. You know, trying to protect their interests uh, and they're trying to make Russia seem like they're trying to make Russia into the the Germany of the day. They're trying to do exactly what they. Uh, did the Germany uh, so long ago with the rhetoric, you know, talking about how this nation needs to be destroyed, you know, all the books, the articles, all the talking points that they had in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, we're seeing the same thing with Russia today. But I very much agree that, you know, I'm not anti-war uh, in the you know, general sense of I don't want any kind of war, war is not necessary. It's just the current uh, battles and conflicts we've been involved in haven't been for the interests of the United States and its people. Uh, has been very destructive. Yeah, and yeah, so I, I think that we're on the same page. I am all for being the I am all for being the movement that is in opposition to all of this foreign policy nonsense that we've been engaging in as of late. You know, I I don't like the anti-war moniker because I think that you know when the left has been the anti-war movement, uh, I think that 
while there are certainly good intentions mixed in with the crowd, they are fundamentally being like, you know, you hear lunatic ideas like we shouldn't have a military. And I'm like, well, you know, as a matter of fact, that's insane. And so, you know, these are people who are like, you know, you know, know, what they actually think is that the United States should lose a war. That's that's how they that's how they tend to view the world. Right. They're like, we don't you don't have a right to defend yourself because you're a bunch of colonialist white supremacist murderers and you all deserve to die. That's their that's their anti-war concept. And of course, you know, um, uh, uh, one time when I was at an anti-war demonstration as a libertarian, um, you know, somebody uh, uh, accused me of being a communist. And I was like, well, you know, my understanding of communism is it hasn't exactly been shy of war. So I don't know where you get that idea. And, you know, subsequently it occurred to me that he gets that idea because he conceives of being anti-war as being a left-wing thing. And the reason that he conceives of that is because the left wants us to be powerless to defend ourselves and they want the country to be destroyed. But that is by no means an opposition to violence because they're a bunch of criminals. And so uh, I think that we're largely on the same page here. Uh, I think it's good that we come out as the voice of reason, generally speaking. Okay, there's all these people who who try to make us out to be violent monsters who want to destroy all that is decent and holy. And when we come out and we say things like, hey, you know, we don't think it's a good idea to propagandize children with genital mutilation. And by the way, maybe we shouldn't be waging war all of the time. I think that that's a good way to appeal to people who are not crazy. And there's a lot of them in America. There's not nearly enough, but there's a there's a large number of people who are not completely out of their minds in this country. And so when you say to them common sense, reasonable things like I don't want anything to do with this Ukraine fiasco, you know, that's a good way to gain support with the public, I'd say. Exactly. And that's something that needs to happen. But I feel that this is, I say this a lot to a lot of people, I say it on my show, I say it with a lot of circles I'm in, that this is a time for us to capitalize on a lot that's going on. Uh, the establishment of the system, it's, it's very weak. The people are, are demanding an alternative, a true national alternative in this country. We need to be the ones to drive it home, to really uh, promote ourselves a lot more, because you know, we're, we're in a good position right now. The left is in disarray. Uh, you know, uh, and the establishment is trying to do everything it can, everything it can to cover up, you know, its mistakes and all this other stuff. This is the time for anybody as a nationalist that is truly for, or what they say they're for, they're truly for trying to save this nation and its people, uh, whether you're white or black. I'm, I'm black, you know, I'm a black American. Um, I view this nation in great, uh, in deep trouble, and it's up to men of action, men who are willing and who are committed uh, to do something about it. So this is a time for us to be pushing every message that we can. It's not being predictable. I think we're too predictable. Uh, they they already made the playbook for us. We already, already know what we're going to say. We have to start being unpredictable with our message, with our rhetoric, uh, with our talking points, and really connect with the people uh, in these communities. Uh- <clears throat> I think that's a, a wise thing. And um, the fact that um, you have not uh, used this as an opportunity to make shameless plugs and the fact that um, uh, you are um, listened to by my good friend, nice guy nationalist, um, uh, tells me that you're you're uh, uh, an eminently reasonable man. So why don't you tell us what your show is? Well, I, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it was an organization that we have. Uh, I'm, of course, I'm the representative of it, not the leader. Um, but I have a show, National Alternative, that's on a YouTube channel called New Frontier USA. Uh, we're aimed at going in these communities and actually working at the local level, talking about things that actually matter, providing solutions to the people of this nation. Um, 
you know, that, that's that's pretty much it. I, I I don't like to go on shows and try to promote myself. I love having conversations with people. I've always wanted to talk to you. I've been uh, <laughs> listening to you for a while now since you you know made such a return. Uh, and I remember, I think the first time I ever saw you, I think you were on like a Vice interview <laughs> years ago around you, Charlottesville. Yeah, I remember, <laughs> I'm a young guy. I remember watching you in school and defending the shit out of you and getting in trouble for it. And you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a, you know, an African American, a black guy. So of course, I had the the biggest crime of defending someone who is uh, extremely pro-white and pro-American. Uh, but you know, it's good to it's good to hear from you. Good to be on your show. Love the work that you're doing, Chris. Well, thank you, uh, friend. You know, um, you said that you've always wanted to talk to me. I try to make that easy enough to do. You might have noticed. But I will say, if you call me on Mondays, <laughs> you got to watch the S bombs. You just said the S word, and we only do that on Friday around here. So I I uh, I appreciate the. I appreciate you calling in. Oh, wow. I, I look forward to hearing from you again in the future, my friend. You said National Alternative. That's the YouTube channel that you participate in. The YouTube channel is called uh, New Frontier USA. New the Frontier USA. National. And National Alternative is a show. Okay, thank you very much for the call, my friend. Thank you for chiming in. Thank you for defending my thought crime, um, despite the fact that, you know, <laughs> you wear a uh, a skin uniform that would seem to indicate otherwise by, by the standards of unreasonable people. And I appreciate that, my friend. Thank you right. very much for the call. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you this evening? Um, hi there. I am a first-time caller and a first-time listener. This is actually the first time I've ever called a radio show. Wow. Um. How, yeah, how did I you stumble across to... this show this evening, ma'am? Um, you know, it's it's a long journey. I uh, I guess Aaron Russo and his Loose Change documentary and a interview that I believe he did in 2001 with Alex Jones was kind of my introduction to the dissident community. Um, yeah, Max Blumenthal after that in the gray zone, who I guess are leftist, left-leaning, rather. Um, it, it's kind of crazy to me how much that has changed, right? Like, to be a liberal or be a Democrat, like, it, it wasn't even 20 years ago that they were all saying marriage is between a man and a woman and civil unions are just as good, uh, just goes to are the Overton windows shifted, right? Indeed it has. And so um, I understand that you've been on something of a, a, a journey for the truth. But I mean, specifically this evening, if you say you're a first time listener today, um, how did you uh, how did you come across us? Well, you're on uh, Goyam TV. Oh, OK. OK, great. So you've been, oh, you called yeah. me over there. Great. Yeah. And I've been listening to like Handsome Truth and Weston on there. Very talented um, guy. Handsome Truth. Very, very talented <laughs> guy. Love that guy. Yeah, a lot of charisma. Uh, I wanted to say your delivery is very pleasant. I think that sometimes, you know, not knocking him, but um, the the oration, right? It can be a little grating to some people. They're not uh, ready for those mean words, especially in the coddled environment that we've seen ourselves in. Well, you know, um, I, I understand that. And, um, 
you know, what you're watching, I'll, I'll let you know that the, the channel that you're watching me on, I do two shows on that. And one show, I'm a little bit more grading. I, I've tried to tone it down over there, too. You're listening to Surreal Politics, and you heard me tell the prior caller, hey, watch your language. Um, we don't do that on Fridays, so be forewarned. On Fridays, we do an uncensored show, and that's called The Radical Agenda. And uh, I, I shouldn't say that. I should deny all knowledge of that because Surreal Politics, it still has credit card processing, and The Radical Agenda doesn't. But anyway— um, so, yeah, you know, uh, I, uh, I appreciate that sentiment, and I work towards that. This is not something that comes effortlessly to me, no matter how easy I make it look. And uh, I appreciate that, dear. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I wanted to make a comment about, uh, you were talking about Michael Hastings. Yes. And I, I don't know if you're aware of, but at the time he was driving a Tesla, and those are uh, very corruptible. You know what I mean? You That's can interesting. take over the yeah. He also, um, despite making like, you know, a DC salary, he had opened Bud Lights in his car that they were saying that he drank. And a lot of people said that that really doesn't add up because he was not somebody that would drink swill like that. You know what I mean? That's um, interesting. Also- yeah. So, okay. So this guy is about to uncover I, I i gathered from what i was reading unfortunately uh, you know he was introducing something that he wants somebody to listen to and i didn't realize what i was doing i'm teasing a podcast that's an hour long but so he it, what they were hinting at was he was about to expose something dangerous and then he ends up dead in a <laughs> dead in a uh, in a computer programmable vehicle with a bunch of uh, beer that he was terribly unlikely to have been drinking exactly exactly and i've heard that what he was going to reveal was um, like shocking information about the endless war in Iraq and Afghanistan and Obama's like involvement and kickbacks from that. Uh, we, we all know, right, that 9-11 was not what they told us that it was. And our entire involvement in the Middle East was not just about opium and oil and Israel and, you know, turning a blind eye to Bakambazi, right? Like, there, there, there was more going on than met the surface. And apparently Michael Hastings, as a gifted uh, war reporter, was delving into that and uncovered some truths that people did not want to have revealed. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of strange how many people have been involved in these high-profile cases and suddenly just turned up dead. Uh, Judge Esther Salas, uh, Lieutenant, I believe I'm pronouncing this wrong, Quarles Harris Jr. Um, and these are people who are either like apolitical or left-leaning themselves. I mean, the regime, as it were, Zog, whatever you want to term it, they, they really don't discriminate. Um, well, I, I think they discriminate joke. a great deal, but they'll go ahead and they'll they'll destroy anybody who threatens their their grip on power. That I have no doubt about. Um, and so that is uh, that is interesting, especially the beer thing. I didn't know about that. That wasn't even mentioned in the article. I mean, you know, a guy who you know a, a guy who is uh, as you say making a DC salary um, is not short of funds for an Uber. <laughs> you know, if he's, if, if he's wasted, you know, and the idea that he's, even if he's, even if he's drinking and driving on his own, I'd say it's conspicuous that he's got a bunch of beers in the car, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, you're, you're somebody who's prudent enough to go out and make a DC salary. You're, you're somebody who's prudent enough to have actually like made a career and bought an expensive vehicle. And you're like, you know what? I'm the type of dumbass 
to have a bunch of beers in my car while I'm driving drunk. That sounds conspicuous in the extreme, I'd say. And so, um, yeah, anybody who's who's going against these people, you know, um, the uh, the name Seth Rich stands out in my mind. And Seth you know, Rich, I was going to, yeah, him as well. This guy's just, are, you know, walking home through D.C. and just America. dies in a random mugging. You know, everybody who everybody who crosses the Democrat Party just dies in a random act of violence somehow. And anybody who questions it is, you know, some kind of conspiracy theorist. And I'm like, well, you know, there's that line, you know, what's the difference between a conspiracy theory and the truth? And it seems to be about six months. But that timeline is <laughs> hastening every day, it seems. And something else kind of off topic that you'll find just, Completely conspicuous. So you've heard about the FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried scandal, yes, right? The modern-day Bernie Madoff. His defense attorney and bodyguard, he's using the same individuals as Ghislaine Maxwell. I don't have their names, but, yeah, the, the same people, both for his defense attorney and his personal, what do they call them, uh, PA, uh, his, his bodyguard. And her father, Robert Maxwell, was called the second Henry Kissinger. And he's a guy like, you know, Soros, just been involved in politics forever, right? Um, I've never heard of him referred to as the second Henry Kissinger, but I read a great deal about Robert Maxwell in a, in a book, um, uh, Gideon's Spies, The Secret History of the Mossad. And uh, he featured very prominently in the history of that espionage institution. And uh, that explains a great deal of why um, her uh, her boy toy there was uh, able to run around uh, having sex with underage girls for years and uh, uh, maintaining a huge collection of videos. And nobody seems to have been um, named as a consequence of that. And that tells you much, I'd say, about world affairs. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And also the island that SBF had that he was operating FTX out of was close to Little St. James Island. And I always like to tell people money doesn't just disappear. It's reallocated. Uh, there are some whisperings that SBF and FTX and uh, strange symbols as well for his companies, uh, or rather his girlfriend's company, Alameda and uh uh, he's also worn some pedophilic symbols on his shirt as well. You know, uh, smaller items within bigger items, that kind of thing. Well, um, I can't speak intelligently yeah. to that because I'm not intimately familiar with pedophile culture. But I imagine that there are people who study these things, and they could probably be, uh, they could probably speak to it. And I wouldn't be surprised to find it out. I mean, look, you know, it, it seems to me, you know, uh, you start talking about this, and people equate you with QAnon or something, right? And what I have noticed, the only thing I know about QAnon is that I am my chat is perpetually spammed with Q, QAnon nonsense, right? And so, you know, there's this phenomenon that there's an attempt to discredit any mentioning that there might be pedophiles in the government. And that seems to me conspicuous oh, in the extreme because, you know, if you wanted to, um, there was a guy, what's the name? I forget the guy's name, but another book I read about the Epstein situation, Spies, Lies, and Blackmail, Dead Men Tell No Tales. You know, they inter they interviewed some guy who was a, a Mossad employee at some point, you know, and he basically, I'm, this is not an exact quote, but paraphrasing, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, you get somebody, you get pictures of somebody cheating on their wife or something like that, you know, maybe they decide that they'd rather, you know, be exposed as having had an affair with a beautiful woman than go along with whatever you, you're doing. Uh, if you catch them in a relationship with a child, um, they're going to do whatever you say to do. 
And you could un- understand why people who ha- do not have our best interests at heart would work very hard to put those type of people in charge of the government. And so um, since the government seems to be acting so contrary to our interests so frequently, that would uh, do a great job of explaining um, why the rich men north of Richmond <laughs> keep on trying to destroy everything. And um, and so I don't think it's um, I don't think it's hard to believe at all that there's a bunch of people who would um, be intimately familiar with uh, pedophile symbols and then, you know, parading around with them in order to let their fellow pedophiles know that they can, uh, you know, hook them up with a date. And this is something that has been touched on a lot. Unit 8200, the Talpiot program, (laughs) Mossad in general, uh, that they use blackmail. I believe the old motto of Mossad was, by deception, thou shalt make war. And it's easy to get, you know, an older politician, tell them, oh, yeah, have a nice time with this uh, 20-year-old. And then you find out, well, she's actually a 16-year-old. and. Oh, isn't that nice that she had a camera on her? So man is easily corruptible, right? Like, and I'm not saying that these are good people, but I think that all people obviously make mistakes. Um, yeah, One Nation Under Blackmail by Whitney Webb. I haven't read it, and I've heard some, uh, you know, interesting things about her and her allegiance actually being to Israel, but she makes a good point in that series, right? And it's it's things that people have said before, that this has been going on for a long time, and it's just been a festering sore that this, this country is not ready to come to terms with. And, and I absolutely agree with you that the whole, you know, QAnon thing, that the people spamming your chat with these comments are likely from Israeli bot farms, right? Like they're just trying to discredit anybody talking about it, guilt by association with people that, you know, think that uh, extraterrestrial, adrenochrome drinking, satanic, I mean, who knows? They're not nice people. We can definitely say that for sure. Uh, but yeah, these, when you get off into the... bots talking about the quantum computers and whatnot, yeah. And so, um, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, it's, um, I, I will, uh, I, I'm about to end the show, so I want to give you the, a moment to uh, conclude your thoughts, and I, and I thank you very much for the call this evening. Oh, I, I thank you for taking my call. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, you know talk a little bit about the disintegration of the real left, how they've just become warmongers now. Uh, And it's strange, right? That Overton window, it's, it's almost pushing people into quote extremism because now you don't want to give children sex changes. You're an extremist. You just want to raise your kids and not have people embezzle money and, you know, give endless amounts of money to, let's face it, Jews in Ukraine. I firmly believe that that's what we're doing over there is making a a second Israel, so to speak. Um, There's been a lot of people that have talked about the Heavenly Jerusalem Project. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but a lot of, uh, like, Ihor Kolomoisky. Have you ever heard that name? Name rings a bell. Yeah. Oh, he funds Um, the Azov uh, guys, right? That's, that's That's the guy, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you know, it doesn't matter the insignia that they're wearing. It doesn't matter who they claim to be, right? These uh, 
oh, multicultural, diverse, and blah, 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 blah. We're going to have gay marriage in Ukraine. Like, when it really comes down to it, it's it's all modern wars, at least in my opinion, are bankers' wars. And frankly, we know who owns the banks. Indeed we do, dear. And uh, thank you so much for calling into Surreal Politics. We do this every Monday at 9.30. We do Surreal Politics, and then every Friday— we do uh, we do radical agenda, and when it's on the radical agenda, well, you could you could name those rich men north of Richmond all you like, and uh, I'd be happy to do that with you. And I hope that we hear from you again, hon. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, I will be on your spicy Friday show and maybe call in again. Yeah, looking forward to it, dear. Thank you very much for the call. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as I was telling that uh, lovely young woman. Um, we do this every Monday at 9.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. And if you are listening on some other platform at some other time, I would invite you to join us for the live program. Um, we air, as she mentioned, on a platform called Goyam TV, hosted by a very talented man by the name of Handsome Truth. And, you know, I don't want to, you know, sound, uh, you know, light in the loafers, as um, Ramsey Paul would say. But, you know, his name is not without justification. I'll just I'll give him that compliment. And uh, and uh, neither am I. You know, I'm actually uh, I'm a pretty good looking guy, too. So if you're listening on the audio, I mean, you might as well tune in for the video and you can catch that on Odyssey. You could catch it on Rumble. You can even watch it later on. You can watch it on BitChute. Uh, but uh, I know that most of you listen on the podcast. And I just want to say special thank you to all of you who are downloading the podcast, whether it's on Fountain.fm or whether it's on uh, whether it's on uh, Podcast Addict. I guess some of you still might be listening on iTunes if you're listening to Surreal Politics, but if you're listening on, like, iTunes or Spotify or anything like that, like you're missing a lot of stuff. You should go over to ChristopherCantwell.net and get on the mailing list there, and then you'll know about all of the naughty things that we talk about elsewhere. That would be a lot of fun, you know? And so uh, you should do those things. You should probably pay me, too. There's a lot of ways for you to do that. You can become a Surreal Politics member. You go to SurrealPolitics.com slash join. And then you can become a member. And if you do that, then when you go over to SurrealPolitics.com slash shop, which is like a different thing, um, when you go over there, then you can buy T-shirts and hats and stickers and all types of great stuff. And you can buy them at a discount if you are a member. But you got to become a member first, and then you see the member pricing. I don't do – like a lot of people do the thing where you're like, oh, well, here's the pricing if you'll become a member. No, no, no. I'm like, what, you're not a member? <laughs> you know, you go ahead, pay full price, you know. But because you guys listen to me now and because that girl has me in a good mood, I'm just explaining it to you. Um, if you become a member, I'll even, you know what, since the girl has me in a good mood, I'll even tell you. If you use the code AGENDA33 at checkout when you're buying your membership, it's normally 10 bucks a month. But if you buy the, uh, if you use the code AGENDA33, you'll get 33% off for your first three months. There's a whole bunch of threes in there and there's a code. It's a secret Okay, but anyway, so you do that and then you buy things at the shop and they're really deeply discounted. Like if you buy a T-shirt, T-shirts are usually twenty five dollars. You become a member. It's only fifteen. So the membership and the T-shirt actually cost less than the T-shirt itself. And that's just math. And you don't want to argue with math because that would make you anti-science. And then Anthony Fauci would come after you and then you'd have to light an Anthony Fauci per candle. And you don't want to do that because that's beneath your dignity. So you should definitely uh, get on the mailing list at ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe. You should follow me on every platform that I'm on, not the least of which is Gab at Real Chris Cantwell. Um, uh, there's X, not Twitter. We don't do the Twitter thing because I'm banned from Twitter, but on X, I'm totally allowed to be there. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at Talk Radio Deity, not to be confused with Talk Radio God. That's the Twitter thing, and I'm no longer on Twitter. I'm on X. So Talk Radio Deity on Twitter, Real Chris Cantwell on Gab. Follow Chris on Telegram. 
And all of that would be obvious to you if you were subscribed to the mailing list at ChristopherCantwell.net slash subscribe. And so do all of those things. You could go to GiveSendGo.com slash SPM and fork over as much money as you want. You could go to the donate page on SurrealPolitics.com or ChristopherCantwell.net. You could fork over as many shekels as you want. The, I do the cryptocurrency thing. I like Bitcoin. I like Monero. I like Bitcoin Cash. I like Ethereum. I like all that stuff. But you know what, uh, ladies and gentlemen? I like you. I like the callers. I like your input. I like talking to you. I like hearing. You know what? I like listening to you more than anything. Honestly, I really do. So do call in. Talk to me. 217-688-1433. Not now because the show's over. But if you call in Friday or you call in next Monday, we'll have a chat. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks a lot. 